Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now. Runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello, and welcome to the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. My name is Hal Bryan, and I'm one of the hosts of the show today. I'm EAA's Managing Editor for Print and Digital Content and Publications, and uh, joining me at a reasonable and safe distance across the table... Tom Sharpentier, Government Relations Director at EAA. And uh, Tom, we've got a guest joining us uh, remotely today, and uh, somebody I've certainly been looking forward to talking to, an operation I've really been interested in hearing more about... And that is uh, Bruce Johnson, and he works for Orbis, the Flying Eye Hospital, as their uh, Director of uh, Aircraft Operations and Maintenance. Bruce, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. Well, it's fantastic to be coming back to uh, Oshkosh again, and glad to be with you. Oh, that's great. Yes, as we're uh, as we're recording this here, right at the very uh, very end of May, we're we're just uh, we're, in fact we're less than two months out from uh, from AirVenture 2021, and Really excited to welcome you guys back. Well, that's great to be there. I think it was uh, 2012 when we were there last, and I was actually just out at the airplane on Wednesday doing engine runs to, you know, we go out every once in a while to make sure it's ready to go, and we were out there doing some work on it. That's awesome. So, Bruce, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you, uh, what what sort of role do you play in the operation of the uh, Orbis Flying High Eye Hospital, excuse me, and, uh, and how, did you, how did you get into doing that? It's a, it's a very, uh, very specialized aviation uh, operation. Certainly. Uh, it really, it started a long time ago with uh, my dad had, had airplanes. Uh, we had old uh, 41 Taylor Craft, an old uh, tri Piper uh, Tri-Pacer that I learned to fly in, of course, Cessna 172. And so I think my first logbook entry is when I was 14 years old. Um, So uh, it's been a while. First visit to Oshkosh, 1973-ish, 74-ish. I can't quite remember the exact year. Um, But then I went in the Air Force, uh, spent some time as an aircraft mechanic, uh, cross-trained to be a flight engineer, uh, spent a great deal of my career on the on the AWACS airplane, uh, so a total of 27 years active in reserve in the mil- in, in the U.S. Air Force and Air Force Reserve. Uh, went to work for Boeing Aerospace for a while, about nine and a half years, where I did uh, uh, a lot of simulator work and flew some experimental uh, airplanes the Air Force used. Uh, then uh, got jo- got hired at uh, FedEx. Uh, was a DC-10. Uh, ground and simulator uh, instructor for FedEx for, I think, 12 years. And in 2005, uh, FedEx flight crews were flying the Orbis airplane around uh, to support Orbis. And I got asked if I would like to to uh, volunteer to fly the Orbis airplane around. So um, I was a second officer on there for from 2005 to 2008. And in 2008, when uh, the FAA mandated uh, FAR Part 125, you know, the larger airplanes, uh, uh, not for hire, uh, Orbis fell in that category. And I took over as the director of operation and maintenance at that time. And basically everything to do with the airplane, from flight operations, from flight plans, weight and balance, to all the flight manuals, to... uh, to all scheduling all the maintenance on the airplane all falls underneath uh, me and my department. 
that's quite an amazing background you have. And, and of course, uh, first and foremost, we thank you uh, for your service, uh, certainly in the U.S. Air Force, but also uh, in your, your latest incarnation in this humanitarian role. Now, can you can you tell us just a, a bit of the broad strokes uh, uh, history of, of the Flying Eye Hospital itself and how that all started and uh, a little bit about the mission? Sure. Um, back in would be pro, would be the late 70s. Our first actual mission was in 1982. So you can imagine the process had to start before that. So in the late 70s, um, there was uh, this alliance that went on between aviation and medicine. So uh, ophthalmologist named uh, Dr. David Payton out of Houston. Um, had observed a, a severe need for the lack of eye care in these low to medium income countries and uh, where blindness was really widespread. And the problem at the time was, uh, and still is today, the expense of some of the uh, uh, the education and the travel to get some of these uh, students where they could get trained. So the idea was was born to put a hospital inside of a plane and go train uh, healthcare professionals in the eye uh, industry in these in these low to medium income countries. Um, so Dr. Payton happened to be a friend of uh, Betsy Tripp, who is Juan Tripp's uh, daughter oh, um, wow. of, of Pan Am. So um, she and Dr. Payton went to her dad to see, you know, what can we do about an airplane? So basically, Mr. Tripp uh, was able to convince United Airlines to donate a DC-8 to, uh, to Orbis. Uh, and uh, Mr. Tripp's uh, personal pilot at Pan Am at the time was a guy named uh, Albert Yulte. Uh, you guys might know him as he was the founder of Flight Safety. Oh, uh, later on. So, sure. so, uh, and thus the reason the AU on the tail of our tail number, November 330 AU. So, so, uh, goes for Albert Yuchi. So anyway, that was the marriage between aviation and, uh, medical and it's continued from that, uh, time on. And I think the big thing that I think people would need to know and understand Orbis is not really a service provider. We actually are a training facility. So whether we're, it's our plane or our cyber site system or our hospital-based programs or country offices, all one of the things that we do or the main thing that we do is do sustainable education and training for the healthcare professionals in ophthalmology. So it's teach the man how to fish philosophy. We teach them and they help themselves basically. That's really interesting. And uh, one question that I kind of had was, is is there something specific about eye care that makes the aviation mission um, particularly uniquely suited? Um, you know, are there, are there specialty um, operating setups or equipment or things like that that make it uh, make it better to to uh, to travel with by airplane uh, to some of these countries? Well, I think. You know, you have the Mercy ships. You have some of the other ships. Of course, you're you're in that case, you're you're restricted by the waterways. You know, where basically, um, well, we when we first started, we had nothing but the airplane. Now we're much more than that. We're, the airplane's maybe 25% of what Orbis does. Now we have 15 country offices. We go do a bunch of. We have a online cyber site uh, tool as well. Uh, but still, the airplane gives us more accessibility than than just uh, 
by the seashore, right? So uh, basically, if we've got a 7,000-foot runway, 148-foot long, or 148-foot wide, we can we can bring the airplane there. And then we can bring people in from the rural areas. So it works pretty well. Um, the other thing I, I think is being able to – logistics is, is – can, can be a nightmare to try to do it another way. Flying an airplane and having everything self-sustained, our supplies are aboard, our power units are aboard, everything's aboard the plane. So it's, uh, uh, it's just sort of self-sustaining. Uh, but the biggest reason we go to so many of these different countries is because of the um, much of what we do is, um, um, is, is treatable. And that's why I think the in and out uh, accessibility the airplane provides is is excellent excellent tool. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, especially for something you know as as outpatient as uh, as as eye care often is. So, could you give us a, a walkthrough of, of the aircraft? Um, you know, how how is it configured? Uh, is, is, you know, where are the uh, what, what sorts of, um, of facilities do you have on board? Rooms, um, operating equipment, that kind of thing. Sure, I think uh, I'll start with the outside understanding that we carry all of our equipment that runs the hospital. The airplane and the hospital are completely separate. Unlike our first two generations of Flying Eye Hospital, the DC-8 and the DC-10, they the aircraft had to be, we did an STC to install a hospital. <laughs> this third generation, uh, this third generation airplane, uh, and those two airplanes, basically, when you plugged into, when you plugged the power into the hospital, you plugged into the airplane, and the airplane converted the power to run the hospital, right? If you plugged in the air conditioning unit, it, you plugged into the airplane, and it cooled the hospital. On this new generation, the MD-10 that your, your people will see here uh, uh, here in a couple months, um, is is completely separate. The hospital is actually on pallets, so it's actually freight. <laughs> There's no interconnection of electricity, water, air conditioning. Uh, nothing is interconnected. Uh, so all the equipment that runs the hospital sits in the belly of the airplane. We have three GPUs, ground power units. We have a liquid cooling system. We have a medical gas compressors. We have uh, HVAC systems. We have uh, water systems. Those all sit in the belly of the airplane. We put them on the ground. And then we connect them directly to the hospital. And therefore, we don't have to go through the certification of certifying the hospital as part of a plane. So it's really, really, really interesting. So it starts on the ground. So when all your people come to the airplane, they see all that equipment, there will be about nine pieces of cargo, what looks like cargo, sitting on the ground over there that's actually running the hospital. Uh, and even in that case, we actually connect to our fuel tank and pull a defuel valve and turn on a transfer pump and we pump jet fuel into our generator so we're self-sustaining uh we've got the fuel right in the plane right so then coming into the plane uh you would come in everybody will at oshkosh will come in through door one left you'll enter just behind the cockpit uh right there at the galley area and then you'll walk into a 46 seat classroom what looks like a passenger section but actually it's a classroom if people were to look around there will be cameras throughout there's actually a 3d monitor up front that uh the students that sit in uh the classroom during surgery 
can actually see the surgery just as if they were looking through the microscope themselves. And they have live interactive training between the surgeon in the back and what they're seeing up front. So they can ask questions, they can get answers. It's all live. And we have the capability of data linking that to many, many, many more countries and thousands of people at one time um, behind the classroom. And I don't know if you have any questions on that or I can keep going, it's up to you. Uh, I'll tell you what, once you just keep stepping us through, I, I, Tom and I are both just fascinated sitting here following along this this virtual tour. Yeah, I, I you know, it's funny. I do um, government relations and aircraft certification pretty much for a living, and I never would have thought about the certification implement um, implications of yeah. putting a hospital in an airplane. That's fascinating. Yeah, and one of the things that was a problem for us is uh, the two industries, of course, are leaders in their two significant professions, you know, being aviation and, and, and medical, but there are some different standards. So it's interesting if you try to marry them together, how you do that. So what we just did in this case, we separated them. We kept the hospital a hospital and it's actually accredited hospital, but it sits behind a 9G barrier. And that's what I was about to tell you at the back of the classroom, you'll see what looks like a wall in a doorway and it, it is a wall but actually it's actually covered up but it's actually a rigid 9g barrier because this is a, a freighter if you look up it's a md10-30f it's a freighter we have a special exemption to carry 53 supernumeraries on board plane which are people but they have to be in support of the mission of what orbis does because it's a freighter you, you don't haul passengers right so you go through this back wall, which is actually a 9G restraint, and that's where the hospital sits. And you'll actually walk up a little ramp to go through that door. And the reason you have to go up that ramp is because the hospital's on top of a cargo loading system because it's freight. And now you walk into the hospital. There are nine different pallets that have the hospital housed within it. And then, of course, while it's in the airplane, we have each pallet interconnected for electricity, AV, IT, oxygen, med gas, all those air conditioning. Um, above that, we have 10 industrial liquid propylene glycol uh, air conditioning handlers that only operate on the ground because one of the certification requirements for a hospital is to keep the OR between 68 and 72 degrees. Well, you can imagine even in there, Wisconsin, uh, a 90 degree day, how hot it gets inside an airplane, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> we we can keep that thing 68 degrees in that OR when it's 100 outside. So it, it's it's amazing. Um, going through the door, the first uh, uh, on your left, which would be aircraft right, would be our uh, communications room, which are communications, finance, and logistics people would be. We also have access to the lower deck where we can do uh, where our maintenance people sit. The next room on the left would be our AVIT, where we have our own AV and IT people on board, our own servers, uh, our own Wi-Fi, our wireless printers throughout, because we basically are a business or a hospital on the ground. Uh, Behind that, the next room would be the laser room where we do a lot of the, uh, we do laser surgery in there. And it's also where we do a lot of our visual acuity test. And it's also where our simulator section is, where we do a lot of simulation now, much like uh, the level four uh, D simulators uh, in aviation. We now have some very, very, very high technology um, 
in simulation now in the eye uh, eye care. Moving wow. on back from that, you you would enter the uh, the operating room area where you have an operating room, substerile, uh, the clean room, recovery, uh, changing rooms, and lavatories, and then the back door. So that sort of walks you through the plane. Um, the aft pit is also a warehouse where we carry all of our supplies. That's just staggering. And, you know, you can, you know, certainly seen you know, uh, DC-10s, MD-10s, MD-11s and things up, up close. You, you know how big they are, but it's not until you really describe these things. I'm trying to wrap my head around the fact that, that your airplane has an IT and a finance department <laughs> and, and uh, places for, for these people. That's, that's really mind-boggling. Yeah, we actually, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. We we have more than doctors and nurse. we certainly have the, the 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 doctors, the nurses, the anesthesiologists, the biomedical engineers. Um, but we do have a finance. We have a logistics uh, person aboard. We have IT. We have AV. Uh, we have a communications manager that handles all the press and everything else when we go to places. So it, it's amazing. Uh, and we have a, a team of three aircraft mechanics that travel with the airplane everywhere it goes. It doesn't fly without them, and it doesn't do a mission without them because they maintain all that ground equipment that's going on as well. So it takes a unique individual both on the medical side and the aviation side to sort of support this. It's something I've always wondered about. Is any of that, uh, any of the hospital area um, accessible in flight, or is there ever any reason for anybody to be back there when you're actually when the aircraft's actually moving and in flight? So the actual... Uh, the barriers at station 758 it's just behind the classroom there uh, but it's technically a class e fire compartment so it is uh i shouldn't say it's not accessible in flight it, you're not supposed to have anybody back there except for doing official duties so a flight crew member may walk back through to check you know after departure we always walk through after takeoff to make sure nothing came on lodged you know or moved around we'll we'll walk back to take a look out on the wings stuff like that uh you know if we had a gear indicator problem or something that needed to look but generally speaking it's not accessible in flight um other than for professional use and maybe just building on that a little bit i do you get a lot of questions from people who say, you know, how do you do surgery in an airplane when there's turbulence and things? Is is it a common, uh, and I'm not making fun of people, I just say, is it a common sort of assumption that, well, you've got a flying eye hospital, you know, we must be doing surgery in the air, or, uh, or am I the first yeah. person who's ever thought of that? No, it is actually the number one asked question. Um, you know, and again, when you think about once we tell people that we're actually a training facility and we're teaching the local doctors and nurses, we have to get where we're going before we can do that. Right. And and then again, remember that there's no power back there. So uh, there's no power. There's no lights. Uh, you know, it's just right in the air. Jeez. Amazing. Uh, that that's uh, yeah, that, that I, I can understand why people would uh, would definitely have that uh, have that question, though, how. Oh sure. <laughs> um, so how how successful um, have has this mission been? Uh, how how many uh, on average? How many people does it serve every year? And um, and uh, you know, in terms of training up uh, uh, doctors around the world, as you as you've mentioned. Well, I think again to to remember the airplane now is 
roughly 25% what we do. So we have, like I said, 15 country offices and, and many other programs going on, an online system called CyberSight. But uh, throughout, since 1982, we visited 90, with the airplane, uh, 95 countries, uh, hundreds of programs. But I think here's some, here's some how, how successful it's been. So in the, just in the last five years, we've done over 260,000 training events. We've had over one, uh, 19.5 million screening and exams. And as far as surgeries and laser treatments go, we've done over 350,000. That's in the last five years. So I think if you just add up all the way back to 82, what would that mean? How many people has that helped? You know, um, I, I think it's pretty amazing, really. That is a staggering number. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, and certainly at a very, very necessary uh, mission on, as you said, you know, something that's very, pre- a lot of issues that are very preventable if they're, if they're caught and treated, um, you know, by, by, uh, by qualified individuals. One other question, just a quick follow-up on this that I had was, do you ever go off mission um, with the aircraft? I mean, you got an aircraft that's outfitted with, uh, with medical facilities. I don't know how adaptable they are, but, it, but have you ever responded to any kind of a uh, disaster that you happen to be in the right part of the world to, to help with or anything like that? Uh, no, we've been, we have contemplated doing that, uh, at different times. Uh, but we have not necessarily been involved in any like major disasters or anything like that, because generally speaking, we're already out on program uh, to do some of the work that we do. It takes 20, uh, 12 to 24 months of planning and logistics. So it's not something that is, you pick up and go like a, a crash unit would, would do, you know? Okay. Yeah, that, that's certainly fair. Uh, while uh, while Tom was uh, Tom was talking, I I did some quick kind of back of the napkin math. So I I can't uh, I can't promise this is accurate. But if you said uh, you helped three hundred fifty thousand people in the last five years, uh, so uh, what does that uh, work out to per year? Is that eighty thousand people per year? Seventy seventy five thousand people per year? Seven seventy thousand even people per year. Okay, I was right the first time. Seventy thousand people per year. You extrapolate that back to nineteen eighty two, assuming that same rate. And I'm sure there was some ramp up and stuff, but that's that comes out to two point seven million people, and that's mind blowing. Yeah, it, it's well, just the like I said, the screenings and exams in the last five years is nineteen point five million plus. Now, but just understand, I think. Just in the last five years, 19.5 million eye exams uh, and screenings. But here's the deal and what people don't think about. We don't do this by ourselves. you got to remember us and our partners because we partner with people and we teach them. They teach others. So we, we train the trainers. So we go into a country. And, for instance, we've been down in uh, northern Peru with uh, a, a hospital and that called the Eero, and we've been there for over 10 years. So they're a partner of ours, and this is just one country. We've been in Ethiopia for over 20 years. So we partner with these uh, institutions, educational institutions, and we train their trainers. They go out and train somebody else, and then they go out and do some screening. So it's it's not Orbis by itself, it's Orbis and our partners. And that's how we reach so many people. It's training and education, not doing it yourself. Sure. Uh, as you said, it was the perfect, uh, perfect example of sort of the teach a person to fish uh, mm-hmm. metaphor. Um, 
so before we sort of move on to the next question, I've I've, I've got to ask with with the training that goes out. You know, you, you guys have a partner. You develop things. You get some people trained, um, and you know, then you're moving on to the next place and the next place, and and sort of cycling through all these things. Um, are you going to put yourselves out of business eventually? Well, no, I, you know, and I'm not the, the communication people or the medical. I'm I'm a, I'm a mechanic, but I. Uh, it's interesting. People are living longer, and actual uh, blindness is up to. And I, you know, we probably let me see here. I I don't have these memorized, so I can tell you. Just let me take a look at something here, real quick. Just to, this is sort of interesting. So these are some vision vision statistics that right now, and then you can understand why we're probably not going out of business anytime soon. Uh, first of all, people are living longer, so. Uh, you know, that causes some of the issues. But globally, right now, there's roughly um, 1.1 billion people that are living with some kind of visual impairment or loss. Uh, and 90% and of that's avoidable. Um, of that, there's 338 million people who are blind or have moderate to severe visual impairment. And 77% of that is in, uh, is avoidable. And then out of, out of those numbers, you've got... Uh, 90 million children and adolescents are, are, uh, have vision loss. Uh, 2 million of those are blind, of those children and adolescents. Uh, 90% of these, in this interesting part, 90% of them live in the middle and uh, low-income countries. 55% uh, of that group are, are women and girls. So uh, in, in many countries, uh, unlike here in the US or uh, there in Oshkosh or the surrounding area where we may have uh, hundreds of ophthalmologists, there are countries out there that have one or two ophthalmologists in the entire country of millions. So training is crucial and I don't think it's gonna be solved anytime soon. Right, and I hope you didn't think that my question was was glib in any way. It was just it was more philosophical. The thinking that uh, it, it seems like your your approach is so effective and leverages the partners in the training uh, training so well. So maybe uh, maybe with nothing but respect, we we hope there's a future somewhere down the road uh, where where you guys uh, could focus on something else. That this problem was true, well and truly solved. But it's it's. Uh, staggering to try to imagine the implications uh, of the number of people you've provided. And even though those uh, the statistics you quoted are overwhelming, uh, the number of people that uh, that you're helping reach by working with your partners is uh, is also just as remarkable. Yeah, and I think I think it does. It does evolve. I will tell you that some of these partners that we have worked with for years are now at the point that we're no longer teaching that basic stuff anymore. Now we're up where we're using some of the state-of-the-art uh, instruments and machines, and that's what happens as well. So as you bring the standard of healthcare up and the standard of living of the people up, you then continue with the further education. So does education really ever stop? Uh, not not for us, it doesn't, that's for sure. And it, right. I think even more so in the, in the line of work you're talking about. But But hopefully, certainly, can we, can we, make a dent i think i think when we looked at how do we solve the problem when we looked at the numbers uh, a long time ago is we felt training was the only way to do it and partnering with others is the only way to arrest the issue eventually uh but we would continue training in some fashion or another yeah definitely 
Um, so we had a question regarding the uh, the, the types of uh, airports that you that you fly into. Um, you know, you go all over the world with this aircraft, and um, one of the uh, one of the questions that we had was was uh, oh yeah, how's just flashing some uh, some statistics here. <laughs> you have a seven thousand foot runway requirement, one hundred and forty feet wide. But what are some of the other um, challenges uh, that you have? Um, you know, you mentioned how self sufficient the uh, the flying hospital is. Um, are what other infrastructure-related issues do you guys encounter in the field, and how do you overcome those? Well, I would say this. I, I said seven thousand feet. Now that's sort of our. That's where we uh, we sort of anything with seven thousand, we're going to pretty much look at it in a field elevation of ten thousand feet, and, and as long as it's one hundred forty-eight foot wide. But one thing is that because we're under Part One Twenty Five, and which is really a derivative of 91, um, we actually don't have a minimum runway length. So we went into fields less than 7,000 feet. And there's, you'd be surprised that there is a lot of airports at 7,000 feet, 148 feet wide worldwide. Uh, but our biggest problem uh, has been ramp space. There's a lot of runways out there, but in a lot of cases, very limited ramp space. Uh, some of the fields that we've been to, uh, I can tell you uh, the runway's 7,500 foot long, but the ramp space is barely big enough to house two or three airplanes our size. And in fact, one of the locations we went to, we closed down one of the two taxiways when we were parked there. We eliminated any overnight stay of any aircraft the entire time we were there. They had to put a notum out. The, the taxiway was closed. We... Um, uh, they couldn't park any airplanes overnight. Um, they, in one case, they had to be really careful. We had to keep scooching the airplane. Uh, we had to have the airplane so far to one side of the ramp. The wing was, you know, the all the way to the inboard. The in, engine was at the dirt. We had a, <laughs> we had a measure by measuring tape to make sure the airplane tail was not interfering with the ILS. So it, it's really the it, it's really the support structure around the parking that causes us a lot of issues. Uh, uh, and then everyone saw our fuel um, transportations here and there, but, but overall it's usually the parking space that causes the biggest issue. Wow. Yeah, definitely. We could definitely uh, uh, see that everybody thinks about runway length and uh, as kind of like the vital statistic of an airport, but, uh, but, but certainly uh, ramp space and, and other, other logistical items are just as important. Um, kind of on a related point there, um, what, what's the general performance of the aircraft? Uh, particularly, what's your range in endurance? Um, how far can you go in a single leg? Well, uh, I can tell you I've flown this particular airplane back from Venice to, uh, to Victorville, California. I think our flight at that point was 11 hours and 45 uh, minutes. Uh, but one of our issues when we load it up, there is not one... I remember this is an MD-10-30F. It's maximum takeoff gross weight. This is a lightweight dash 30, so it's only 565. So it has a takeoff limit of 565,000 pounds. Um, but we've got it loaded from from stem to stern with support equipment, medical supplies, the hospital. So our zero fuel weight, uh, our zero fuel weight is about 375. Um, uh, we're heavy. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, people that know the MD-10 
uh, DC 10 30 ish when they put a tug on us and they start to go, they never realize until you hear the tug, oh, you hear, you hear the RPM come up and they still haven't moved us yet, you know? So we're, we're pretty heavy. Uh, we cannot get a full load of gas on board the airplane anymore. We have to leave about 45,000, 50,000 pounds of fuel on the ground. So our, our, our endurance uh, suffers because of that. So we're up around uh, about our max flight now. Flight time is about seven and a half hours. Uh, is about all we can do, and and that that uh, and then we cruise roughly at 500, 500 knots, you know. So, uh, two, two. So, uh, you're out there a ways, you know, thirty five hundred, four thousand miles uh, is our range, roughly. And for those of you uh, listening at home and uh, were uh, just curious, uh, the uh, gross weight of this uh, of this MD ten is about uh, two hundred and twenty fully loaded one seventy twos. Exactly, and it only carries uh, two hundred forty four thousand pounds of fuel fully loaded. So. <laughs> and and uh, like our flying club one seventy two here at EA, we do not have an IT or a finance department uh, anywhere on board no, the aircraft. Oh, hey, do you, do, you, do you have a maintenance office? We got through three snap-on toolboxes on pallets downstairs full of tools. Uh, we got a maintenance station that can tell us what the oil pressure is on the generator, whether the whether the uh, the uh, clean air uh, fan is failing in the recovery room or wherever, you know? Well, that's all pretty fancy, but we've got a little thing where I can plug in a USB cable and charge my iPad, so... <laughs> You know, we all we all have our bragging rights. I guess. We, we we got about seventy of those. <laughs> of course, oh, that's fantastic. Um, so so Bruce, I want to talk for just a minute about uh, about the earlier days, uh, um, which I know predates your involvement. But um, so you guys started with that uh, DC eight, you know, uh, donated by United Airlines, and uh, one question I had is I saw a picture on the the website very briefly that. Look like the DC eight's on display. Is that true? Is it uh, is it on display somewhere? Yeah, uh, one of our last missions uh, after we had picked up the DC ten and uh, on our one of our last missions, uh, uh, it has it's in the Chinese uh, Aviation Museum in north just north of Beijing, China. Oh wow, gosh, that's that's amazing. Now, do you know is it open to to visitors? Can they go inside, or is it more of a sort of a gate guard sort of thing? It's more of a static display there's it's not open although i will say this the dc-10 our second generation airplane is on display in the pima air and space museum in tucson arizona and it does open to the public periodically it's not all the time and if you've ever been to that museum that's basically a static museum where you just walk around the outside ours was the first airplane that went in to um that actually is open to the public that's great and we left the hospital in it. We left the hospital in it, left the power equipment. Uh, wow. We did some training. Uh, um, I'll, I'll have to tell you a story off off radio how we got it to that museum. If you ever go to that museum, uh, take a look at the nearest airport and tell me how we got it there. Okay. But, uh, well, I look forward to that. And I, I'm sure anybody coming to see you at uh, Oshkosh this summer can maybe ask you about that, as you said, off uh, maybe off the record. Um I'm sure this is a, a blindingly obvious question of sort of speed and, and endurance and payload and everything else. But um, what what were the really the key factors in saying, you know, what we've got to move on from the DC-8 to the DC-10 and then from there to the MD-10? 
Well, I think uh, the DC-8 to the DC-10 was sort of a, a no-brainer. When you when you looked at the DC-8, it was a much narrower fuselage, uh, and you basically, from front to stern, you had to sort of walk through almost everything. The DC-10 was so wide, it was a wide-body jumbo jet. You ha We have an aisleway down, the, down one side of the airplane, so you don't have to pass through the communication room, through the AVIT room, through the laser room. You can just actually walk down a hallway and enter whatever room you'd like. Uh, so that was the big decision driving factor, DC-8 to DC-10. Um, and then, of course, the as we evolved there, we ended up with needing more supplies, more equipment, uh, you know, just saying, and the, the DC-10 just was, uh, had more capability. Uh, although the DC-10 was a DC-10-10. So why'd we go to the Gen-3? Well, first of all, the hospital was starting to get a little long in the tooth and hospitals had made a lot of um, uh, advancements since the DC-10 came out in the 90s, you know? So in 2016, we started converting somewhere around 2012. Uh, we started the conversion on the MD-10, and it took over in 2016. But it was an upgraded hospital. Um, it was a Dash 30, so it had more fuel. It had bigger engines, longer wings. Uh, so it had better range. Um, it had an extra set of landing gears, so it had a lighter footprint on the runways. Uh, it was also... The difference between an MD-10 and a DC-10 uh, is basically a glass cockpit. So it had modern era technology in it. Uh, when you come in, you'll see six LCD screens um, uh, up front. Looks much like a, what looks like an MD-11, although it's even fancy. It's even more modern than MD-11. Uh, it's actually triple seven era, not triple seven technology, but triple seven era technology. So um, it's it's much newer. It's updated with all the recent ADS-B mods and TCAS and all that kind of stuff. Wow. And, and I can't remember is the is the MD-10 a, a a two crew aircraft? Do you do you eliminate the flight engineer on that? Yes. So uh, this airplane's a 1973. Uh, it was a DC. It started life as a DC-10-30, uh, converted to a freighter in, I believe, 81. Uh, and then FedEx owned it for from that time frame. FedEx donated it to us in 2010. And uh, we modified it into the hospital. Uh, but I think one other thing that makes the DC-10 crucial compared to maybe even a bigger jet like a 7.4 or a 7.7, um, the wingspan, even though it has the wide jumbo fuselage, uh, the wingspan is only 165 feet. When you start going to either the 7.7 or the 7.47, those are over 200 feet. So that, remember when I talked about parking space? Yeah. Those kind of airplanes would really limit the field. So the narrow, the big body, but narrow wings, make the MD-10, DC-10, 30 uh, a real ideal airplane. I guess one last question before we before uh, we, 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 we start to wrap it up here. Um, is there anything about the trijet configuration that's, um, that, that's particularly advantageous for the type of flying that you do? Well, I think uh, the biggest advantageous part is that uh, one of our largest supporters being FedEx is operating MD-10s. So all of our volunteer pilots are FedEx. Uh, uh, we do our we do our training 
at the FedEx facility there in Memphis. They have a 142 school on the MD-10, MD-11. Uh, it's their volunteers. Now, their pilots, just to make sure everybody's real, their pilots don't fly the Orbis airplane as uh, a FedEx pilot. They just happen to be FedEx pilots that volunteer to fly our airplane. Uh, and, and FedEx allows them to do that. But they fly under the Orbis program and are actually an Orbis pilot when they fly. But uh, that's part of it. And I think the other, the only reason that the Trijet worked out is it's a, it's a large body airplane with the shorter wings. There's not too many other airplanes that fit that mold. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Well, that's awesome. Um, so you're going to be in uh, Oshkosh for, I, I, you probably uh, have a better count of this than, uh, than I do, but certainly not your first time. Um, and we're always, we're always happy to see you when, when you come here. Um, what does it mean to you and your mission uh, to be able to display the aircraft here in Oshkosh? Well, I think, I think first of all, I, I think for us to be able to go to a large venue like you guys are, I mean, there's, there's, there's very few places that you could put an airplane like this and have the impact that you, that you guys have the ability to have with the number of people to basically be able to tell the story of what we do and the fact of, spreading uh spreading the word of how much avoidable blindness is out there and to do the work that we do and and because we're a a, a 503c company we we do this all uh on donations so we're you know we can't do this we we're not a for-profit company so uh to be able to spread that word to get people to understand who we are and what we do and to be able to do it to so many people i think is it, there's not many venues better yeah, no, it's uh, Oshkosh is an, is an amazing venue for the aviation world. Anything aviation related, uh, and certainly um, certainly have a uh, an organization that has a foot both in our world and also um, in the medical and humanitarian community. And uh, you guys do wonderful work. Yeah, and I think too. I think I I think one of your other. I know humanitarian aviation is one of your themes. I think this year, and then I I think there was some historical aircraft too. Right? Is is that not one of your uh, uh, things this year. Yeah, I, I think as it's uh, as it's working out, it's a bit sort of unofficial. But as as it's as it's working out, so certainly a lot of the humanitarian aircraft that we'll be focusing on also sort of check the uh, check the sort of vintage airliner box. And uh, it's you know I'm I'm old enough that it's really hard for me to look at an MD anything and and think vintage. But as you said, that airplane was built uh, in what seventy three, seventy four. Um, yeah, so. in fact. Uh, What's sort of interesting about this one, and I, I've got the newspaper article, and I actually met the the man who uh, delivered this airplane in 1973, in April of 73. There's actually a newspaper article. I'll, I'll bring it with us to Oshkosh if you guys want to take a look. But uh, and I, I'd have to go back and look at it. But it was delivered, and it on its inaugural flight, it flew, I think, from New York City to Hong Kong. And it set the record at the time in 1973 for the most amount of freight hauled at, at that distance. Wow. So it's one of those, it, it came out as a combi. Uh, so it was a combi passenger freighter when it came out in delivery, but it actually is in the newspaper article for setting the record for the most amount of freight uh, at the uh, at that day. So it's got a little bit of historical value. Plus it's one of the, one of the first dash thirties built. Uh, and it is the, uh, the oldest Dash 30 still flying, and and who would have thought on that uh, that record-setting flight that that's that that's a, a big deal for any type for any aircraft and for any pilot, uh, but it's it's amazing to look at that and then realize 
that this airplane had even uh, had a much more important mission ahead of it and was going to make a much, much bigger impact on lives quite literally all over the world. Yes, uh, certainly. And, and it, 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 it uh, you know, another life, you know, went from a passenger to a freighter and now to uh, humanitarian. So it, it's, it's had a good life and it's flying well. And uh, you'll, hopefully you guys all see we, we take really good care of it. Well, uh, we're certainly looking forward to, uh, to seeing it and you and, and the rest of the, the Orbis crew uh, back in Oshkosh here, as I said, as we're recording this, just about two months out. Uh, so, Bruce, thank you once again so much for taking time to join us today. Um, really, really fascinating stuff. And it's, it's, uh, it's one thing to sort of on the surface say, okay, here's this airliner and it's got this hospital uh, in the back. And you can, if you don't think about it too much, it seems fairly straightforward. But as you delve into it and you realize all of the infrastructure, uh, both sort of physically and, and from a personnel standpoint, that's needed to make that happen, it is uh, – uh, a massive, massive undertaking, uh, and uh, I'm hard pressed to think of a of a better cause uh, for that to serve. So, so, uh, so, Bruce, uh, thanks not only for your time but for everything that uh, that you and Orbis does. Oh, we we appreciate it, and we thank you so much for for having us, inviting us, and and sort of helping us spread the word about uh, what we do. Excellent. Well, again, Tom and I, uh, I think you don't, won't mind me speaking for him. Look forward to seeing you and uh, shaking your hand uh, in person here in uh, July. And I'm sure everybody out there listening who's coming to uh, AirVenture this year will be glad to see you as well. So with that, thanks to all of you out there for listening. Uh, thank you for those of you who take time to uh, leave us uh, reviews on our podcast. We, uh, we see a lot of those on iTunes and some other places. Uh, you can always uh, comment on each individual podcast. Uh, episode. Uh, it has its own web uh, web page at inspire.ea.org, which is our hangar flying blog. Each podcast has an entry there. You can comment directly there or you can send email to feedback at ea.org. And it's because of the reviews and the feedback and the comments that uh, that we get that uh, we were able to start this podcast and uh, keep it going. Uh, and of course, with uh, with thanks to, uh, to wonderful guests uh, like Bruce, who give so generously of their time. So, Thanks again, everybody. Please keep listening. Keep the comments coming. And we look forward to catching up to you next time when you're cleared to land on the Green Dot.